have children's service for them, a little children's class for them. Definitely uh, love them to go and take part in that. So if you're old enough to enjoy it, uh, and that could be any of us, actually. I didn't want to do a disservice to the, to the time, but uh, feel free to head on back. So. Well, good morning. Good morning. My, my name is Eugene Williams. I'm back again. This is Pastor Nate still traveling. He'll be back next week with us. I look forward to it. I'm sure we all look forward to him getting back and um, definitely have been appreciative of him allowing me to come and share the word with you, open the word with you. Um, as you're aware, we've been reading through the book of John. We've been studying this book to understand what John is teaching us about Christ and what he wants us to understand about, um, about him and how to relate to him as as followers of Christ. Uh, Let's start out by reading John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We're going to focus there this morning. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is how it reads. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Pray with me, please. Dear God, dear God, we uh, as we look at your word this morning and look at your son this morning, we pray that uh, you would help us to see um, what it means to trust you and what it means to be trusted by you. And God, we know that um, as we experience various, challenge, various challenges in life, it's, it's easy to, to lose sight and lose focus on who you are. And so, God, we pray that as we focus this morning and, and seek your face and seek your face and, and your word, that you would help us to be more committed to you, more devoted to you, uh, more, more trustworthy to you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So as I was saying before, we, we've been reading through the book of John. And as you, if you recall from our very first study, we saw, and as Pastor Nate was teaching us, that, that John's desire in his book is to help us understand Christ's deity. He wants us to see Christ as God. He wants us to understand that uh, so that there's no doubt that this is, in fact, God in the flesh. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a chance to see Jesus at the wedding at Cana, and during that wedding, we saw him perform his first sign or his first miracle. And that miracle really was a, was a point, or at the time of that miracle, that was a point where his ministry was transitioning. He was moving from being this um, almost young man to being the man that God had, a, had made for him to be here on earth. And so for the next three years, the next short three years, he would spend his life really filling, fulfilling and, um, and carrying out the responsibility that he had as being the savior of us, the savior of the world. Last week, we, we had a chance to see how Christ goes into the temple, and then when he enters into the, the temple, we, if you recall, there was that area, not the temple proper, but the area outside the temple, where he comes in, and what does he do? He, he removes all these merchants and money changers that were in that area because they were distracting people from the worship of God. Well, following that event, many people in, that, in, the, in the Jerusalem area began to believe in him. They said, hey, this guy, he, he has something going. There's something about him. There's something different about him. He's exercising a certain type of authority that we've never really seen before. And as a matter of fact, we'll see in a second, he's exercising an authority that's really consistent with what we've come to know the Messiah would do when he does come. And so as a result of that, there were a lot of people, most of the people there were saying, hey, this, is, this, this might be the one. This, this might be the one we've been waiting on. We talked last week about the fact that, you know, Jesus wanted to help them understand as he walked into that temple and cleared things out. He wanted them to understand what respect for the house of God meant. And, and really, more importantly, what respect for, for God was all about. And bear with me if I try, to, as I try to use this technology here, which I don't think I'll be able to do it because it's a lot of buttons. So thanks. I appreciate it. Um, what it the point he made last week, or at least the, the few points that I pointed out last week, was that Christ wanted us to understand that to honor him what, or to respect him was to remember why he came, uh, to expect him to, ro- to arrive at the right time, 
to see ourselves the way he sees us, to put away those things that keep us from worshiping him more fully, to eat the food that he eats. There I was referencing uh, John chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus says that his food is to do the will of his father. And so we are to eat the food that he eats, which is the will of the father. We're to challenge those who teach falsehoods against him. And we're to teach others what we have come to know in this gospel as he's taught it to us. And so as we think about what it means to respect him, we move on into this idea of, okay, here are these people who are trusting in Christ, or at least they say they trust in him. But the scripture says there that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Today, I want to talk about this topic of trust, really posing the question, what, tr what is trust or who do we trust? And, and what, it, what does it really mean to trust someone? To get to, today, the goal of the study is to examine the events and the people of the scripture to try and understand what it means to genuinely trust Christ, to, to really, really trust him. And as a follow up to that idea, I want to talk about what it means to live a life that is trustworthy. In other words, not only do we trust Christ, but we also should live lives where Christ can actually, Christ can actually trust us. He can actually trust us. The topic, this topic of trust has become kind of a hot topic over the last 12 or so years with the advent of, of e-commerce. You think about people buying stuff online, putting in credit card information, you know, identity theft, people stealing your information. Sometimes I get email, cracks in the back of this. Sorry. Sometimes I get uh, uh, these text messages from people trying to get information from me that, that come as spam, you know. So this, this idea of trust and who can we trust, what websites we can trust, what applications we can trust, what people we can trust. You know, there are people who work for the government uh, worked in, in, in very security responsibilities, and they've, they've betrayed that sense of trust. And so this idea of trust is a big idea, is a big thing uh, today. And so it, it makes us feel better. We think about this, it makes us feel better when we know that we can trust someone, when we know that we can rely upon them, when we know that, that if we give ourselves to them, they'll give, our, they'll give themselves to us. When we're falling down, they'll be there to catch us. When we're in a battle they'll come alongside of us and fight with us. Now, that's the whole idea of trust, and this is the relationship that we see being highlighted in verses 23 through 25 of John chapter 2. Today, as we turn our hearts uh, toward the men and women who gave their lives in service to this country, virtues such as honor, service, commitment, sacrifice, uh, they come to mind. We consider mottos such as semper fidelis or always faithful. Uh, this will defend uh, courage, commitment, and honor, or honor, courage, and commitment. Aim high. All these, these mottos lead us to a deeper reflection upon the principle that to believe in something requires that I be willing to, without hesitation, give all that I am to that something. If I believe in something, I must be willing to give everything that I am to that something. And when we talk about our relationship with Christ, we realize that there is no greater cause there is no greater aim, there is no higher aim than to live lives in service to him. He is the one who can be trusted because he is the one who controls all things. He controls everything. He orders everything. He sustains everything and is above all other things. He's perfect in every way. And so we can trust him. The question really becomes is, can he trust us with, with our, our faith? In that he is sovereign over all creation, God knows everything. And though Christ, as part of his humiliation, his suffering on our behalf, allowed himself to be limited in knowledge while in human form, he completely knew the hearts of men. In the scriptures, we find instances where he reveals for us what he discovers in those hearts. And through these revelations, he highlights the problems that prohibit us from knowing him and being known by him. You know, we talk about, you know, it says here in, in verse 25 that Jesus knew all men. He knew what was in men. The question we should ask of ourselves is that, because, you know, if he knows me, what does he know about me? What does he see about me? Things that I may not reflect or display to other people. He knows what's in us. He knows what's going on in us. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 2 says that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs the heart. The majority of people believe that to some degree they are generally good. I think most people would say, unless you're a little, you know, kind of 
unstable to some degree, would say that, that you're generally a good person. You ask anyone on the street, you know, are you a good person? They would say, oh, I think I'm a good person, right? And even people who may not consider themselves, well, who consider themselves good, uh, really um, pride themselves in their humiliation. If they, sorry, if they don't consider themselves good, would pride themselves in their humiliation and saying, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a humble person. I'm not good. I'm not, not worthy. Uh, almost superficially demeaning themselves. The good, thing, the, the good thing for all of us is that God weighs our hearts. He's the one who looks inside of us so that whether we think we're good or whether we pride ourselves in saying that we're bad, God is the one who tells us whether or not we're right, whether or not we're right before him. In order for us to um, experience the change that God wants to make in our lives, um, we, we have to know that, that he knows what's best for us, that he knows what's best for us. So to, to the direction of our study today is to take a, take a moment and focus on what trusting Christ is not, what trusting Christ is, and then how trustworthiness is engendered or how it's produced in our lives. What, what, what it means to, cr- to trust Christ, what it means not to trust Christ, and also how trustworthiness is produced in our lives. And we want to live trustworthy lives. And so our, our objective today is to understand those attitudes and actions that flow out of a heart that's right before God. It's a little warm. I don't know if you guys are warm, but I am warm. So I've got a sweater on. I could take it off, but I don't want to do that. So um, anyway, the, the study, this study today, it's not a list of characteristics that we can use and then figure out how to, to, to appear as a trustworthy person. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about different characteristics that you can start applying to your life so that you can live a more self-righteous life, right? Not a bunch of do's and, and things that, that you can, can, can latch onto and say, okay, I can do these things now, and if I do these things, I'll, people will trust me more. Um, becoming an insider threat, as it were. Um, it's not, today, we're not going to use an alliteration or an acronym. Or, or an acronym. You know, one of, the, one of the things they teach in seminary is, is the idea of, of structuring your message so that it makes sense to people. Um, a lot of times, to make that easier, we use alliterations and, and acronyms. And although those are easy to, to go to, today I won't be doing that. And so what that means is that I'm hoping that you'll kind of pay attention and take notes. It's going to be, might be a little more difficult to take notes today because there won't be like some, you know, R-E-S-P-E-C-T kind of thing going. Um, nor is this an exhaustive list today of things that are, are demonstrative of people who are trustworthy and who trust God. So what this really, hopefully this study, what it will do is drive you and every study that we have here on Sunday morning really to drive us to a deeper study of God's word. You know, that's the reason we come on Sunday. That's the reason we go to Sunday school. That's the reason we go to Bible studies. It's not just so that in that time we can open God's word and dig deep into it. It's so that our pump can be primed to study the word on our own, right? To go home and, and, and chew on this stuff a little, a little deeper so you can take these notes today and use those for, for deeper study. What this study is today is it's a look at a few people, a few cases in Scripture, where we find Jesus interacting with, with those who either did or did not demonstrate genuine faith, who did or did not gen, uh, demonstrate genuine faith. And what we'll use this morning is this concept of, of analogy of faith principle. Or If you guys have heard of the analogy of faith principle, it's the idea, or if you haven't heard of it, it's the idea of using Scripture to interpret scripture. You know, the early church founders, or early church fathers said that we should be able to use and we should use first scripture to understand what scripture is saying. And so that's the whole principle and that's the kind of thing we'll do this morning. And, and ultimately, when it's all said and done this morning, I hope that we would um, use this time to examine our own, own lives, examine our intentions, uh, those things that, um, that, that are in us that should not be in us or those things that are in us that should be more fostered and, and, and built upon in our lives. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our main goal is that we live a life where God sees us as trustworthy people and that others see us as trustworthy people. You know, we talk about the concept of living above reproach. You know, the idea of living above reproach is the idea of living a life where no one can blame you for anything. No one can come, bring accusation against you. No one can bring cause against you. This is the type of life that God has called us to live. This is the type of existence he, wanna, he wants us to, to, um, to live in as we stand before him.
And so, you know, although there's only a few verses here, I realize that there's only just three verses we're looking at. There's a lot of depth here, a lot of, a lot of truth here. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had a chance to go to the Getty Museum down in, in Los Angeles. We used to live in L.A., and we used to love every weekend or every couple weekends going to the Getty Museum. The only fee to get into that place was the parking fee. And if you parked, you know, around the corner, you'd have to pay that. Right? Just, just a little walk, you know, ride that tram up, up the hill, you know. And so, I mean, I, when we got there last time we went, we got to a room where they had these paintings by Degas and, um, uh, who was the other guy, Van Gogh and a few other guys. And it was very, it was just amazing to see these paintings in one room. One guy told us that the room itself was worth about $400 million, this room of paintings. And in the Getty Museum and in this, in this room especially, they have this little seat where you can sit down and, and focus intently on the painting that's before you. So even if it's like a self-portrait of, of Rembrandt, you know, you can sit there in that little cushioned seat as people are walking around, and you can focus on the little lines and, and the, the way he, he you know, painted certain features of his face. You know. And by doing that, you're able to kind of get an idea of what was going on in the mind of the person that, that painted that. You know, what was he thinking? Why did he do that that way? That's kind of the thing we have this morning. That's kind of the thing, actually, we have throughout the entire scripture. You know, one of the great things we find in the Word of God is that God has a great word economy, right? He says things, he says really big things in only a small amount of real estate, right? I mean, there's a lot more. We could have tomes of God's words and explanations of God's words. People have tried to do it um, in commentaries, as a matter of fact. But God has left us these words that we have before us so that we could study them, focus intently on them, sit down on that cushioned seat, and look very closely at what he's saying. And that's what we want to do. That's what I want to do this morning as we focus on verses 23 through 25. There's an enormous principle here. And that is that trust is mutual. Trust is a mutual thing. In marriages, we see it, trust is mutual. In, in, in business relationships, there has to be a mutual trust. In other words, trust can't exist without both, both parties demonstrating that trust. Relationships can't thrive if both parties in that relationship or the parties that are in that relationship have a commitment to trust one another. You know, in looking at this particular passage, we see um, John using kind of a, a grammatical um, uh, concept or a, a grammatical kind of uh, play on words. He, he says there in verse 23, or I'm uh, sorry, in, yeah, at, the end, at the end of verse 23, it says, many believed in his name, when they saw the things that he was doing, but Jesus did not, on his part, entrust himself to them. Now, my Bible translates that word uh, entrust from the word pistuo, which is the same Greek word that's used referring to those people. So it, it really effectively is saying that, that there were those in the town who believed in him, but Jesus, on his part, did not believe in them. Now, John MacArthur says it this way. He says that he had no faith in their faith. He didn't have, they had faith, but he didn't have faith in their faith. The question is, can God say that about us? You know, we say we have faith in him. We have a church, a universal church, that many of which would say they have faith in God. They have belief in God. The, the true question is, does, can God say about that church, about those people, about that individual, that he has faith in their faith? And looking at this group of people, we can kind of get an idea of what trust is not. What trust is not. Trust is not belief in him simply because of what he can do for us. Trusting in Christ is not believing in him just because of what he can do for us. Although we may understand that it is only through Christ that we have a relationship with God, appreciating that relationship cannot end with me simply waiting for him to do the next thing in my life. That's not trust in God, waiting for him just to do something else, do another trick. You know, this is kind of what these people were, were doing here. They were excited about him because of the wonders that he was doing. The people of this passage were excited about Jesus because all, all the things that he was doing for them and for others. But there was something that was incomplete about their enthusiasm. On a similar occasion in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 30, if you could turn there, maybe on the screen, but yeah, Luke, Luke 29, I'm sorry, Luke 11, 29 through 30, we have this account 
where it says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, what is this passage teaching us about the type of attraction to Jesus that these people are demonstrating? First, it teaches us that attraction to Christ that is solely motivated by a desire to witness his miraculous displays is evil. If we're attracted to Christ because we're just wanting to see him do something miraculous, you know, heal a limb or raise someone from the dead or make someone get out of, out of, of a wheelchair or whatever it might be, if that's what attracts us to him, then there's something evil about that. There's, some, there's something wrong about that. The passage also teaches us that those who are attracted to him must be attracted to understand their need for a Savior to suffer and die on their behalf, being in the earth for three days, coming out to proclaim the power of God. That's what he's talking about there. The sign of Jonah, Jonah, if you recall, was in the whale, the belly of a whale, for, you can say, three days, right? And then he came out, he was coughed up by that whale. Many believe that he actually died in that well, and he was, he was actually resurrected. Some people believe, and I think there's a, a good case for that. He, he's, he's coughed up by this well onto the, the banks of the city, and then he comes out, and what does he do? He goes out and he proclaims what God had called him to proclaim to those people. And what did he say? He said, he said to Nineveh that God is calling you to repentance. And so that's the next thing we see in that passage is that those who are attracted to him, those who are attracted to Christ, must understand the need for genuine repentance. They must understand the need for genuine repentance, just as those to whom Jonah preached. And so trusting in Christ is not believing in him simply because of what he can do for us. Also, similarly, trusting in Christ is not belief in Christ because he emotionally excites us. Trusting in Christ is not belief in him simply because he excites us emotionally. He gets us revved up. Now, he should. You know, I've been to, to Christian worship services with different singers and stuff and uh, went to a third-day concert not too long ago, or actually it was long ago, in the 90s. And uh, <laughs> I, I got into my 30s, and then all of a sudden, everything that happened in the, in the 90s in high school became, you know, a blur. Um, but uh, but you, you go to these events and you go to these concerts. I went to it recently. I went to a Chris Tomlin concert. And, and, and I think Carrie Joe was there singing too. And, and when you're at these events, I mean, I don't know about you guys. It may not, may not do it for you, but it was, it's just really amazing just to worship God in those contexts. And, and those experiences can be very exciting. You know, you, you can come out wanting more, wanting to be more excited, wanting to be more enthusiastic about who he is, wanting to go out and tell people to, you know, know God, come to Christ. But this, it shouldn't end there. It shouldn't end there. Consider Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Here we have Jesus giving this parable of the sower. You know, he, there's a bunch of crowds again. If you, if you recall, there's a lot of crowds who come around Jesus. A lot of crowds meet together to, to, to listen to him and talk to him. He, he's talking to a group of crowds. He's there on, in a boat. And as he's in a boat right off the shore, the people are there on the beach. And he's talking to them. And he's giving them all these principles for life. And one of the principles, in giving one of the principles, he gives this parable of a sower who goes out and sows some seed. And this seed falls among different types of soil. These soils, he would describe later, represent people, the hearts of people. And he goes on to say that certain people are certain ways. Certain people have certain uh, acceptance and non-acceptance of the good news. In this particular case, he's explaining this, this rocky ground or this rocky person. He says, as for, the one, as for what was sown, or the word that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, he immediately falls away. My mind goes to that, that young lady, I think, who's in, in Africa, who's, uh, who's was put on trial because she, she refuses to, to denounce her, her trust in Christ, her belief in Christ. She refuses to accept the Islamic command. 
And as a result of that, they've, they've deemed her a blasphemer. And so they're gonna, they're gonna, they claim they're going to put her to death for that. This is a person who, who she's not this soil, right? The goodness of Christ didn't just excite her to the point where she was just there for a moment. She was excited to the point where she was willing to, in the face of tribulation, in the face of persecution in the world, she was willing to say, you know what? I'll give up this life because I know it means nothing in the eternal grand scheme of things. In this explanation about talking about this rocky soil, the seed of, of the word uh, in which the seed of the word was, 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 was thrown, Jesus reveals to us that the Jews that were in town for the Passover festivities that day were rocky people. They were rocky soil because when Christ is brought to trial and is persecuted later on, they fall away. As a matter of fact, some of them were claiming. These same people that were yelling about how good he was were the people that were calling for him to die on that cross. And although it's not directly stated here, it's understood from later observation that these listeners don't understand the depth of the meaning behind the scriptures that, which spoke concerning him. They have no root in the truth. They have no root in the truth, and so the truth doesn't take root in them. You know, when, when God's truth gets in us, it should take root. When we're excited about God, when we're excited about Christ, that, that excitement should be from the fact that he has placed his, his, his root in us. And from that root that he has he's built up in us, fruit should grow. Branches should grow. Life should grow. A, a life that demonstrates and reflects trustworthiness uh, toward him or to him. Trusting in Christ is, is also not belief in him while maintaining a hypocritical existence. Trusting in Christ is not belief in him while at the same time maintaining this uh, a hypocritical um, existence. Calvin says it this way. He has a quote here while studying for this week. He says, Hypocrites are sent to the gospel not that they may devote themselves in obedience to Christ, nor that with sincere piety they may follow Christ when he calls them, but because they choose not to reject entirely the truth which they have known, and especially when they can find no reason for opposing it. I'll explain that in a second. Next slide. He says, For as they do not voluntarily or of their own accord make war with God, so when they perceive that this, his doctrine is opposed to their flesh and to their perverse desires, they immediately are offended or at least withdraw from the faith which they had already embraced. And so what is he saying here? He's saying that the hypocrite chooses to believe simply because they haven't heard anything in the teaching that goes against what they already know, the traditions they already believe, the things that they already have accepted. This is how the hypocrite believes. He says that when they are called to change their ways, to change their traditions that oppose God, their half-hearted faith causes their belief not to remain. And they don't remain faithful. Since the one who is the object of their faith has challenged them, has challenged their belief. Consider Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9 on this topic. Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You know, you can imagine the situation. Jesus is there eating. And then here comes these guys with the phylacteries and the clothing. They walk up. You can imagine them. Oh, here they come again. Why do your disciples, they don't, they don't wash their hands? They're kind of rugged guys. They're not seeing the food as, as holy as it should be. He answered them and said, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father and his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not show honor to his, he need not honor his father. For your sake... For this, for, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah say, prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here Jesus says, the commandment teaches you to honor your father and mother. In your tradition, you've taught that if you give money to God, you don't need to help your parents. 
just tell them, hey, you know, mom, dad, I would have given this to you, but you know what? I gave, you know, all this money to the church. I would have helped you out, but these priests, they needed that. By their encouraging this practice, they were treating the commandment of God as less important than their own commandments, their own traditions. Here, Jesus, Jesus is explaining that trusting God means to, that we fully release our, from our grasp the things that we deem important so that he can place in our hands those things which bring glory to him. This point also helps us uh, transition to this next topic in that you know, having understood that we, we must replace what is in our hands with what God desires to place in our hands, that which brings glory to the Father, um, we find that this trust, it calls for sacrifice. Let me back up a little bit. You know, we see these guys and they're, they're, they're giving these commandments out. They're giving these traditions out. And in giving these traditions, they're making these things equal and sometimes above the commandment of God. Jesus is saying this is hypocrisy. This is wrong. This is not genuine trust. This is not genuine belief. So we ask the question, well, what is trust? This kind of brings us into the next thing here. What is trust? Well, trusting in Christ is believing in him because of who he is and not because of who we want him to be. Believing in Christ or trusting Christ is believing in him because of who he is, not because of who we want him to be. Now, it can be safely argued that these people who were in that temple in, the, in Jerusalem for the Passover that day, that they genuinely believed that he was the Messiah. You could, you could, you could argue that. You ask the question, well, why would you argue that? Last week, I talked a little bit about a long time ago when the, when the temple was first destroyed. If you recall that, in, in the book of, of Daniel, we have this account of how the, the people of Israel had been taken out of their land. And as they were taken out of their land, Nebuchadnezzar, who took them out to Babylon, he destroyed their temple, right? And when he destroyed the temple, he was making a statement to the people that, hey, you have to depend on me now. You have to look up to me now. Now, of course, in the book of Daniel, we have a lot of things that are revealed to us. But beyond that, in the book of Ezra, we see kind of a historical follow-up to this chapter, to this book, and to this event, wherein the people of Israel are now in a position where they're going back to their land. Cyrus the Great had made, made a declaration, the Persian king made a declaration that, hey, you can go back to your land and serve your God. And after they had been in captivity, they go back and do this. They go back and start rebuilding the temple. But in the process of rebuilding the temple, they get discouraged. There's a bunch of people around there who are telling them, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Going back to Darius, going back to the, to the, to the king of the time and saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't let them do this because if they do this, they're going to raise up themselves and become greater than you. There's going to be an insurrection. If you let them keep going, they're going to take down the kingdom. And so for a moment there, they were, they were stopped, right? They were discouraged. And so they need a little bit of encouragement. They need some encouragement. So God sent two prophets. One was, anybody knows this is like for extra credit. Ezra was one of the leaders. One was Haggai, and the other was Zechariah, right? And these two prophets came along, and one, Haggai came in and spoke really strong words. He said, hey, you guys got to get back to work. God called you to do this. You got to do it. And then following that up, Zechariah comes in and he says, hey, not only do you need to continue doing this because God called you to do it, but remember that you're doing this for the sake of the Messiah who is to come. There is a Messiah who will come. He will come and he will establish this temple. He will establish this nation. He will bring forth his reign on this earth. And so these people who were there for Passover, a lot of them knew about that. They knew about it. Zechariah chapter 14, in his, in his prophecy here, Zechariah 14, 20, 20 and 21 says this, and on that day, again, this is Zechariah giving them encouragement, telling the Jews back there in 500 some odd BC, telling them, hey, on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. This is the kicker here, verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of, the, of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It's really fascinating, right? 
The Jews were hanging on to that. As a matter of fact, you know, some Bibles may, may, may tr translate this word traitor, uh, Canaanite. And you may have a, a King James or a, a New American Standard. And I just want to take a minute to kind of prove that this should be traitor, or at least say that it's a better translation. If we look in the original language here in the book of, uh, in the book of Zechariah, maybe it's on the next slide, um, well, you can't see it. But there's a word there. Next slide. I kind of circled it with a, with a yeah, there, there it is. Um, Canonite. That's a word that's usually translated Canaanite. You know, they were Canaanites, again, the next slide, we see in, in our, uh, our Brown Driver Briggs, if you don't have one of these guys, if you're doing Bible study, you got to get one. The Brown Driver Briggs uh, Hebrew lexicon is an excellent resource. But uh, in Brown Driver's, Driver Briggs, he, they tell us that this word Canoni can actually be translated merchants. Because the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, they were merchants. And so looking forward to this event where Jesus is in the temple and he's clearing things out and he's blowing all this stuff away, he's taking out the merchants, the people that were there were saying, oh, hold on a second. He's got authority. He's kicking out the merchants. Oh, I think this is the guy. He's back in Galilee. He's performing all these miracles. He's doing all these signs. Oh, this is the guy. This is the one. This is the one who's going to set up a political rule for us. He's going to come in here and be our king and take down Caesar, take down Herod, take down all these guys and set up for us, us, us Jews, a kingdom here on earth. So they were really excited. They were excited for the wrong reasons. They were excited because they were looking forward to what he would do for them. They were, they were creating an image of who Christ is and not taking Christ for who he actually was. We do the same thing today. You know, this is, this is what false teaching is all about, right? We build up for ourselves an image of God that is not God himself. We, we build up an image of Christ that's not Christ. We add amendments or, or addendums to the Bible. Some, some, some churches and groups do, some cults do. Creating themselves an image that suits their desires and suits their needs. Zechariah says there in verse 21 that in that day when Messiah comes... There shall be no canoni. There shall be no traitor, no merchant. He's trying to say in this passage here, in that passage we saw before, and, and Jesus is trying to reveal again in that event, in that situation where he comes in and he cleanses out the temple, that, hey, this house was intended to be holy to the Lord. And the purpose of this house, the God of this house, was also intended to be holy unto the Lord. Jesus' actions were a sign that he was the promised one. They were ready to crown him as king. Though not for the reasons that were consistent, consistent with an understanding of his destiny. They didn't realize that he was supposed to die. He was supposed to be rejected. They didn't, they didn't put the whole story together. They didn't use the analogy of faith principle. You know. They had Isaiah before them, right? They had the history. They knew that the Messiah was to die, but they, because of their ambitions as a nation, they just kind of put that stuff away. Secondly, trusting in Christ is believing that he is the one to whom we are ultimately accountable. Believing that he is the one to whom we are ultimately accountable. Psalm chapter 55, verses 3 through 6. This is the, David saying this. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, we talk about being above reproach. That's what we're talking about there. God is obviously, he's definitely above reproach. He, he, is, he is blameless in his judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is teaching us that accountability requires that we see our sins through the eyes of God. You can imagine, I got this image when I was putting this together, of the idea of a man or, or a woman flying a plane. And when I was a kid, I was, I was probably about maybe nine years old. I was flying on one of these Eastern Airlines flights back when they were still around. And I had the opportunity, of course, this is before 9-11, you could walk up into the cockpit and shake the hands of the pilot, you know. I, you know the, the stewardess let me go to the front and watched the pilot fly the plane. And they gave me these little, uh, little wings to, to carry around, right? 
you know, this is kind of the image that we're talking about. You know, when, when, we, when we see, when we're seeing this, well, in this case, when you're seeing this pilot fly this plane, you're able to see where he's going. You know, how, you know, the things he's navigating with, you know, all those different knobs and, and you know, gadgets and gauges he's looking at. You know, we, we, we get this image in that, in that kind of illustration of the idea of us seeing God at work. And not just seeing him at work in this world, but seeing him at work in our lives. You know, we're watching him work on us. We're watching him do what he does on us so that we can be the people he's piloting us to be. Right? The passage here in, in Psalm 51 also teaches that, 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 that God is the one who sets the bar. We don't set it. Those around us don't set the bar. We don't rely on men to teach us what is right or wrong. If we did, we'd be grossly misdirected. Uh, nor do we view the, the harm that we've done to others as stopping, um, as stopping there. In other words, we don't, we don't stop with how we see things. We stop uh, with how God sees things, and we also stop with where God sets the bar for us. You know, he establishes the principle and the rule for what is, what is right and what's wrong. Romans 3.26 says that, uh, that God is the one who justifies, and he is also the justifier. He's the one who justifies, and he's the one who's ju- who, who's, um, he's the one who justifies, and he is the one who is just. He is the only one who can tell us what is right and wrong. He's the only one who can, who can make us right. He's the only one that can, can make us right before him. It's not, not a spouse, not a political party, not a, a society, not, a, not an education or, or, or a school affiliation. He is the one who is, he's the only one who can make us right. The passage also reveals that we must realize that we're born in and, and with a desire to sin. That's our nature. That's our disposition. We're born, we all know this, most of us know this, we're born to sin. You know, that's, that's, that's the way we're bent. And so all the more we should be relying upon him once we, we've come to acknowledge and realize who he is and the change that he brings about in our lives, we must lean upon him more to make us the better. Him. The last thing this passage teaches us is that we must fully rely upon Him to teach our hearts what is right because He leads us into a life of truth. He's the one who leads us into a life of truth. This life of truth is our aim, right? Because it's living in a life of truth in our inward being that we can be found trustworthy to others. You know, we. Most of us want to be, I think, I would hope that most of us want to be people with integrity, right? We want to live lives where people can count on us, where we're accountable to people. This leads us to our last point here about trust and trustworthiness and how trustworthiness can be produced in our lives or is engendered in our lives. Trustworthiness is engendered by being one who lives out what we believe, by being people who live out what we believe. In Luke chapter 17 we find Jesus in a situation where, again, a bunch of people had come up to him. They knew he was, he was doing great things. And there were these 10 guys. They had a disease. Anybody remember what that disease they had was? They were? All right, they were lepers, exactly. They had spots all over them. They were sick. And leprosy during that time was, a, was kind of a, a, a sin that they, or, or a disease that, that people, people associated with sin either because of the spots on people or because many people felt that it, they had the disease because of some sin they committed. And so all these people are around, and then these 10 lepers come up to Jesus, and they, they come up to Jesus, and they, they, they ask to be healed. And so Jesus heals all of them. And then they all go away except one. One comes back, and he says to him, he, he thanks God for what he did. And then Jesus says about that person, hey, you coming back and you demonstrating this? He's like, where are the other guys? Were there not 10 of you? And there's only one that come back, comes back. And it's a Samaritan, an outcast, a person that was typically rejected by society. He says, you came back. And he says to him, he follows that up. And this is the point here. He says, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. And, and in this idea, we see this topic of saving faith. 
Again, it's one thing to believe that Christ is. It's another thing to believe that Christ changes. He does. He moves. He is real. He wants to affect our lives. And thinking about this concept, consider John, I mean, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. We'll read this whole thing because it's, it's very important here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one who of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving the things that he needs for his body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and that belief was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's something we should really, we should study that every couple of weeks. You know, that our, our, our faith life should be a life of living. Right? Sounds redundant, but it's, it's true. Our, our, our life in Christ should be marked by us living for Christ. James is drawing this picture for, for us that genuine faith is faith that is acted upon. He, he then begins to make the connection between this double-sided coin of belief. You know, you think of an idea of a, of, a, of a coin, and a coin has two sides. And if one side of that coin is missing, the coin is worthless. And you walk into a store with a quarter that has... Washing his head on one side and then nothing on the other side, if the clerk is paying attention, they won't take it. They won't buy you anything, right? You can't get that Wrigley's gum that you wanted, right? He continues by drawing an image of seeing someone in need, a person looking at this person and saying, Wow, you have a problem. You have an issue. You need something. See you later. Well, you're sick. You, 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 you don't have any clothes. You're poor. You're hurt. You need help. Peace out. Right? That shouldn't be us. You know, we, we have been called by God to live for God. Right? And living for God is not just learning the rituals or learning the the Bible things that are there and, and being very versed in, in passages and being very articulate in the, the grammar and the Greek and things like that. Walking with Christ, living for him, means that we do for him. How else is the world going to know that we belong to him? Yeah, we can go and tell the world to repent, and we should. We can go and tell the world that their, their, their actions and their deeds are evil, and, and we should. But in, in the same vein, we should be out there. We should be at the forefront of taking care of people who are in need, of taking care of those who don't have anyone to take care of themselves. Because think about it. Those Pharisees, remember as we said last week, Jesus, instead of going down to Jerusalem during the second Passover, he stays up in Galilee in the Capernaum region. Why? Because these people who were in Galilee were considered outcasts by the religious elite by the people with the big buildings and the nice clothes you know, and the great books and the great liturgy and the great songs and the great activities and the great whatever. The people up there were considered dregs and fishermen and people who just didn't, didn't, didn't need attention, right? Jesus says, hey, these are the people you're called to. John is, James is reminding us, this is Jesus' uh, brother of the flesh. You know, he's reminding him, hey, these are the people that you are called to help and love and care for. Verse 17 there, if we go back to the previous slide, 
He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, thinking about that two-sided coin analogy again, we talk about us being justified by our faith, right? We talk about this idea of actually being able to be presented to God or presented before God as people who are worthy of what he has for us, right? And we, we have to understand and we know that if we don't have the two working together, then what we have is, is not alive. It's not living. It's not worth its weight. Verse 18 shows us that there are some who think that uh, these notions can be separated. This, uh, you know, this notion of, oh, I think that God is real because I believe that he's real. And verse 18 is the one that, uh, that says that someone will say, you have your faith and I have my works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith with my works. You know, some people believe that, hey, I can, just, I can just work my way into God's presence. That's wrong. There are some people who say, well, I can just believe in God and just sit back and have a relationship with God. Well, that's wrong too. You know, it, there's, there's something going on there, what Christ is saying, what James is saying here, by way of the Holy Spirit, is there, there's something that should go on in our lives whereby these two things coexist. And these two things are, mark our, our existence. He goes on and he talks about this idea, when I first read this a long time ago, I thought it was very fascinating, this idea that even the demons believe in God. And not only do demons believe in God, but they also are fearful of him. Is that where our faith ends, right? He's effectively saying. Is that where, is, do, does our faith end at the same place that the demons' faith ends? His point being that if, if that's where it goes, that's not good enough. That's not where it should, should end. He's trying to drive home this point that, that we are not to be foolish. He says, Again, that we can't have one without the other. He provides two examples from faith history. This Abraham example and the Rahab example of people who believed God and through that belief performed works that were consistent with the belief. The last thing we see here in our passage or in our study today and looking at this idea is that trustworthiness develops in our lives when we live in humility. Trustworthiness develops in our lives when we live in humility. Now, chapter 2 of the, these verses 23 through 25 are actually kind of a, a preface into uh, chapter 3. It's kind of a fun chapter where we see Nicodemus and we see all these events around him. Nicodemus, if, and Pastor Nate will talk about this next week, I'm sure, but Nicodemus was a guy who was a Pharisee. And being a Pharisee, he was really actually one of the chief of the guys. He was a big-time a big Pharisee. As a matter of fact, his name, Nicodemus, Actually, in, in, in the Greek, was translated uh, one who conquers, victor over the people. And so this Nicodemus guy, he was, I mean, you look at him, you think this is, this is but, but, but he comes to Jesus by night. And, and, he, and he comes to Jesus, he's been thinking about these things. He was in the temple, he saw what happened, and he's thinking to himself, there's something different about this. There's something going on here. God begins to work in Nicodemus's heart. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, I, can you help me? See this more clearly. Even though he was a high official, even though he was highly regarded in his, in his community, he humbled himself to go to that place where he was vulnerable. Now, he was a great teacher. He was supposed to really understand the law very well. But in his humility, he went before Christ and said, hey, can you explain this a little more deeply for me? Can you explain this a little more clearly for me? Because I see a reason to believe, but there's something holding me back. Trustworthiness grows in our lives when we um, are people who demonstrate stability. Not only uh, will, will trustworthiness grow when we live in humility, um, and not only does it uh, happen when we live out what we believe, but also it is demonstrated in our lives when we, when we show stability or when we live lives of stability. Jesus did not entrust himself to these people as he did with his closest disciples because he knew that they weren't stable. They weren't people who would hold fast to his teachings. Since many of them were looking to him to bring some form of political reform, he didn't think it was worth committing himself to them. They weren't stable. Recall, he spent a large number of time in, Gal in the Galilee region ministering to the outcasts, the Gentiles, people who didn't have some type of ulterior motive. Now, they were more stable in their thinking regarding him than these people who were all buttoned up were. 
So trustworthiness grows when we demonstrate stability. And lastly, as we close this morning, trustworthiness grows when we become discerning followers of Christ. Discerning followers of Christ. Jesus says there in that last verse, he says, and, and it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. We don't have the ability, obviously, to look in the hearts of men and women. If you do, keep it under wraps. I don't know if you, but we don't have the ability to look into the hearts of men and women. We don't have the ability to, to peer inside of someone's mind and their heart and know their motives their ambitions, their, their plans. Only thing we can do is look at people's actions, right? Only thing we can do is look at their fruit, see what they do, see how they carry out them, their lives, see how they treat people. You know, before someone gets married, one of the things they tell you is, is, is they, ask, they tell you, ask the question, how do they treat their parents? How do they treat their friends? You know, because those people that they've been closest to for a long time, how they treat them is a demonstration of how they'll treat you in 20 years. Or it could be, right? We look at people's actions and how they treat one another and make a determination as to how they are and who they are. Christ knows everything about us. There's nothing we can hide from him. As followers of Christ, he gives us the opportunity and the ability through his word and through his spirit to discern what's right and what's wrong. If we're to be trustworthy to him, then we have to trust him also with his discerning, the, the discerning that he desires to give us. He gives us discernment through his word. He gives us his discernment as he works in our lives through situations and circumstances. The ultimate point is that if we're to be trustworthy to God, we're to be people who depend upon him to give us discernment as to how we live out our lives. When I was, a, when I was younger, I used to go to a church where our pastor used to talk about um, this idea of, a, of discernment, and he'd talk about this net this grid system that we're to develop. And when we're new in our faith, that grid system is pretty, pretty chunky. You know, big, big blocks of grids, right? Now, as we grow in Christ, as, as God teaches us and, and, and builds us up, that grid system becomes more and more refined. More pixels on the screen would probably be a more current analogy, right? The more, the more fine-tuned, the more pixels you can fit on the screen, the more clear that picture is. The more, able you're, the more you're able to see the, the, the dots and the specks on the screen when you have more pixels. What, what we see in our relationship with Christ is that Christ is increasing our resolution. That wasn't in my notes. I hope it makes sense. But Christ is, is he's increasing our resolution. He, he, he's making us 1080p or 4K, whatever it is, the newest one out, right? He's giving us the ability to see things more clearly. He's giving us discernment. We have to trust him that he's going to do that. And if we trust that he's going to do that for us, then he sees us as trustworthy people. Trustworthiness grows in us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we confess to, to you today that we don't trust in you enough. We confess to you today that we don't depend upon you enough. That when circumstances arise that bring difficulty or confusion or frustration, it's easier for us to lean upon our own capabilities and our own abilities than to lean upon you. We confess before you today that even as a church, Lord, that we don't see you as clearly as we could, as clearly as you would like to reveal yourself to us. And so, God, today we pray that you would still our hearts, that you would take our hearts, Lord, and that you would make us people who trust you more so that you might trust us more. Lord, you've given us a great responsibility. You've given us your word. You've given us a duty to bring before men the good news that you proclaimed. And so, God, we pray that you would help us be more faithful to that. Show us again where we've fallen short and call us to be people who live for you, who model your goodness, model your love, and model your grace. In Christ's name, amen.